Welcome to The Edge, brought to you by the world's leading underground construction equipment company, Ditchwitch, proud to support the sports you love. I'm Steve Brigman, and I'm joined by the host of Bass Edge Television, Aaron Martin. Well, happy 100th podcast, my friend. And same to you, Steve. We have quite the lineup today is all I can say. We'll be uh, joining Pam Martin-Wells, where we fished with her down on the St. Johns River. A little later, Mark Tucker will be joining us. Mm -hmm. And then we also have a special surprise where Denny Brower, Brian Snowden, Jared Littner, Davey Hyde, and Boyd Duckett are all going to be stopping in to say hello. Oh, man, this is going to be fun. Let's get going. Get her like that with Boyd. Good job. I don't know of any other sport that offers the challenge of bass fishing today. Oh, yeah. did you see yes, that? Yes, I saw that. That was awesome. <laughs> Watch for the fish to pace the bait. What do you think of that, huh? Yeah. That's full contact fishing right Man. there. You're listening to The Edge, the official audio program of Bass Edge. Aaron, is that uh, that little gray I see forming up around the sides there? <laughs> you know, well, I think it was you, wasn't it, that told me, you know, you're a big Pat Sajak fan, and, uh, you know, I, I recently <laughs> heard that they that's, did their 5,000th yeah, episode, so we've we've got a little uh, little more to go to catch up with old Pat and Vanna. You know, we need a Vanna on our show. Of course, <laughs> I guess, you know, it is radio, so, you, you know, whatever. So. Yeah. But, uh, man, it is kind of neat. I mean, I think it's very exciting. Uh, 100th episode. I know I spent a little time this week looking back and listening to some of the old ones, some of the very early ones. And uh, I think we've come a little ways. Yes, but, uh, we have. It's incredible who all we've talked to. Now, you, you know, you've done the bulk of those interviews with the big-time pros. Reflect to me on some of your looking back on a uh, 100 episodes of podcast. Uh, well, your memory. boys, it's so hard to quantify, and, and when I was thinking, doing that, that reflection myself, I guess, you know, there's there's so many, obviously, stories uh, that come to mind, but I often wonder, it's it's like, okay, the farther we get into this, it's like, are we ever going to get to a point to where we have nothing more to talk about? And that is never the case, Steve, you know, and that's one of the unique things, I think, with the diversity of anglers that are out there, the right. guests that we have on the show, there's always new information. I don't think anybody's ever going to accuse either one of us of running out of things. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that's for sure, and you know. But one of the things that does come to mind is is just the notes that we get. You know, the emails that are sent in from young fans to people that that's obviously been around the sport for a long period of time, and then just mention about uh, how they're able to take some of the things that the guests bring up here and improve uh, not only their day on the water, but kind of embrace and and, mm -hmm. and take that and uh, become a better angler. Well, you know, one of the neat things for me is. Uh, you know, I'm the 50-something member of our team here, and with the podcast, we do tend, like our listeners who email in, we do tend to get a, a younger crowd, and mm -hmm. I think the podcast, the technology, that all makes sense, but... In a way, for an older angler for myself, it feels like I do have this feel like I have this connection to, to to young folks now that I didn't even realize was out there, and it's just really gratifying to get these letters from these young guys trying to fish and seeing them ask some of the questions that I used to ask my dad, and my uncle. I really enjoy it. You know, speaking of being connected, Steve, and being in with the younger audience, you had a Facebook page before Bass Edge did. Hey, I'm a modern kind of technological kind of guy. You you are with it. Of course, it only took you 20 years to get a cell phone, but uh, <laughs> hey, I got to give it to you. You know, when it comes to Facebook, you're on top of that, and uh, Bass Edge was well, a little lagging. <laughs> that, that, yeah, that's been fun. I started playing with that the other day, and then that's very interesting. You end up hearing from all your classmates and something, and hey, on the cell phone, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. You had to 
get a cell phone, so you can call me. I know you you miss me sometimes. Exactly. I you know I I like to keep you under under the thumbnail, but there's yeah. still some days when I want to throw that thing in the left. <laughs> well, that's why they have an on-off switch, I guess. But uh, <laughs> speaking of memories, you know, I'm sure as uh, your career has progressed over the years, and I won't say how many, but uh, I'm sure you have a few memories in the outdoor community, being a journalist and all the things that you've done. Oh my goodness, yes. I mean, you know, and it's like you said, choosing one is kind of tough. You know, I've been fortunate enough to do the Alaska and Africa and Mexico and Canada things. But, you know, one thing that always sticks out to me is that a number of years ago, I went out to Rick Clunt's house to do a story about him. And we sat in his living room and he told me the story about the very first days he started bass fishing. And he was a saltwater fisherman. And him and his dad got kind of fed up with the crowds and went up to Rayburn to check out this thing called bass fishing. And they went up there and they didn't catch a fish. But over on the ramp is the Pasadena Bass Club. And Rick wanders over there, and he looks at this weigh-in, and he's just fascinated. He talked about these funny little skinny boats that you steer from the front. I know a lot of our young podcast listeners will not know much about that. <laughs> but uh, it was just so interesting to hear those a story from the world's greatest fisherman in, in his very early days. But uh, but I've had uh, hundreds of interviews like that, and I've enjoyed every one of them. Well, and the thing is, you, you start to realize, and you put it in perspective, uh, the importance that those that went before us and, and the role that they play with getting the sport to where it is. So hats off to them. And uh, man, I look forward to another 100. I know it. Me too. And I'm looking forward to this one and 101. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, uh, you know, okay. the good thing is, is it's warming up. I tell you, I don't know about you. Of course, we still have some violent weather patterns going on. But every day that, you know, we see that temperature spike, that mercury go up, it's like... Man, you know the spawn is, is getting close, at least in this part of the country. Well, yeah, I mean, my grass is already starting to grow, which creates a whole other problem. But I tell you, it is getting spring. It's a fun time to fish. You know, it's that time of year that you tend to go out and, I don't know, it seems like the first time in spring, I always end up hauling somebody in because they didn't charge their boat or they didn't have enough gas. Their first trip out, they didn't take care of their boat or something. Because it's that time of the year where everybody's kind of going out on that first fishing trip of the year. And everybody's excited, the first warm weather. But it can be one of the most difficult times of the year to fish, I think. It is. And it's. have you ever noticed that it can almost be uh, maybe coming at the end of the day and you talk to guys at the ramp and this guy over here, you know, absolutely slayed them and maybe myself or another guy you hear talking about, man, it was tough. And I think that has a lot to do with just, you know, the fish are really grouped up. They're staging, you know, they're getting ready to kind of move in for that for that spawn and really becomes critical on that 90-10 rule that we heard from Bob Luska a couple weeks ago talk about that, you know, you just got to find which 10% of the water that the fish are living in in that particular season. Well, absolutely. And, of course, you know, this is the time of year where in most of the parts of the country, you have a lot of spring cold fronts blowing through, and that's changing the temperatures and the winds and barometric pressure. And these fish are grouped up, but those groups will move around. So sure. it can be sort of a hit-or-miss deal, and it can be very challenging to deal with these fronts. But uh, you know, learning to make the right adjustments with the various weather patterns and the quick changing patterns can be you know, to your advantage. Oh, well, no question, because what we know is that, you know, whether it be runoff, whether it be wind, uh, you know, that's creating a churning action or, or some surface disturbance, uh, that all has an impact on what is taking place with the bass. And we also know that not only is the bass's metabolism speeding up or, or getting higher or increasing, 
but so is the bait and the forage of which they're mm-hmm. feeding on. So therefore, you know, starting to speed up that retrieve, changing up the offerings that you're providing. And, and I think that goes back to you and I had an earlier conversation. I think it was earlier in the week and you were talking about, you know, the migration routes. And, and when we got off into mm-hmm. that discussion, I thought you brought up a good point of as far as looking to the shallow sides of the coves and the pockets. And also then the comment that you brought up about the hemisphere uh, and being in the south versus the north. Maybe elaborate on that a little bit. Well, yeah, you know, I think that when you're looking for fish in the spring, I think you're looking for the part of the lake that's warming the fastest. You know, we're in the northern hemisphere, so the sun is always to the south of us, so that a cove that is on the north side of the lake that has a north-south orientation is going to have a more direct sun and warm factor. If it tends to be shallower or if it tends to be a little more stained, that again will give you a faster warming water. So, you know, I know that uh, on one of my favorite lakes, you could look on the map and there's just one big old bay way up on the north end of the lake. And every year that was the first place that you could start catching shallow fish. And as the fish migrate in, and we did have this discussion and, and there's some various thoughts on it, but I've always felt like that as the fish migrated into a cove, that they would tend to kind of hang out and feed a little more on a shallower bank. Now, a lot of times there's not, you know, it's quite even. But if you've got a cove, say, that goes through, and on one side of the creek itself, you've got large, shallow flats, I think that's the path that these fish will tend to migrate, staying close to that deep water on that kind of transition zone between the deep water and the shallow flats move up during the warm weather to feed on the shallow flats. But one reason that's why where a lot of the bait fish are, because the water's warming. But then as things cool down, shut down, move back out and stage up on that creek channel. So uh, well, it goes back that, to that, what we've said before, as far as the three things that a bass needs, which is you know food, security, and comfort. And the scenario that you just described, they're adjacent to that deep water. They're able to adjust as whether it be the barometric pressure, you know, water temperature, all those things. They can move up and down in the water column. The drop off, mm-hmm. the, the significant drop off right there on the edge, let's say, gives them that security and something they can relate to. But also then the flat creates the ambush point to where they can go up, they can corral that bait or trap crayfish or, or what have you and uh, get a belly full. So all good information. Time to go fishing. It's pretty I know. Time, baby. <laughs> I know. But uh, you've been out and uh, doing a little bit of traveling here lately. Well, I have, and I've got some more travel coming up. I'm really looking forward to here in my own backyard. I'm going to go see uh, the folks over at Backcountry Outfitters on March the 28th. They're having their annual spring fling. Uh, they're going to have a number of uh, outdoor types there. I'll be there signing books from 1 to 3 o'clock. And Dwayne Hayna, my good buddy who did the illustrations for my book, uh, Somebody's Got to Do It, will also be on hand doing some sketches and selling some paintings. So, you know, I urge folks to come out and visit me. And I tell you what, the first person that comes up to me and says, I heard it on the edge, I'll give them one of my books. Well, you cannot beat that. There you go. So uh, the first person that comes up, they'll get a free book. You know, that same weekend, I want to remind those, our neighbors that are a little further to the south, big draw out of uh, kind of the Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Missouri uh, range. The Big Bass Tour presented by Legend Boats is going to be held on uh, mm-hmm. Slot Lake Shootout there on one of your favorite places to be. You're familiar with both of them, actually, Lake Fork and Ray Roberts, which is on March 27th and the 29th. So anyway, a lot of stuff going on here in the upcoming days. But you know what, Steve? We've got a lot of ground to cover yet today. <laughs> yeah, we better get to your interview with Pam Martin Wells, and we'll get to that right after a quick break. Hey, Aaron and Steve, this is Brian Zoom. Thanks for making it to 100. You've got the truck. 
you've got the toys. Now it's time to get the hitch that gives you more time to play with both. It's the toe and stow receiver hitch by B&W. You want options? Select the ball size, adjust the height to level the trailer, or stow it out of the way in just seconds. It's 10,000 towing pounds worth of durability, convenience, and the latest technology that has made B&W famous. The Tow and Stow Receiver Hitch by B&W. Call 1-866-BEST-HITCH. Welcome back to The Edge. Brought to you in part by Ditch Witches Zod. Establishing a new standard in trencher power and versatility. All right, we are back on the edge, and joining us this week is our guest WBT angler, and that is Pam Martin-Wells. Pam, thanks so much uh, for being part of the edge. Thank you for having me, Aaron. You know, Pam, we had the opportunity to spend uh, really quite an amazing day, I should say. Actually, I think it was uh, two days down on the St. John's River there in Palatka, Florida, of course. And I've got to say, it, it was pretty phenomenal. And before we kind of get into describing why we made some of the decisions that we did, perhaps you could more or less kind of set us up as far as what anglers can expect and kind of describe, you know, really the St. John's River there around uh, Palatka where we were fishing. Yeah, Aaron, you know, the St. John's River, is it actually runs some 300 plus miles, but it's one of the few rivers in the United States that actually runs north. However, it's a tidal river, so at times you'll have the current running one way, and then it'll run the other way. So, you know, there's a lot of factors to factor in. But, you know, you go out and you go fishing, and, and you try to maintain... Hey, it's an excellent fishery. Well, and, and you know, you bring up a, a good point there because I can't say that I'm the best in geography when it comes to directionally and knowing where I'm going. But, you know, that was a little bit confusing to have, you know, the river come basically coming out of the south, obviously heading north, you know, and when you go to say you're heading up river, but you're actually heading south, that can, that can be a little <laughs> bit challenging. Yeah, it's it's a little bit confusing. It gets you a little turned around. And, and then when the tide runs the opposite way... You, you know, it really throws you a curve, but uh, like I said, it's an excellent fishery. It's not that hard to figure out. You know, you, you can get the tide charts off the newspaper or whatever and, and just fish it like any other normal river. You know, and, and transitioning into the next topic, which is it is a tidal system. And basically what that means is that the, you know, the tide changes every so often. But one of the interesting things is, you know, you can kind of look at it of what's supposed to happen and what the tidal charts do say. And one of the things that we ran into that day was the fact that we were there during a full moon plus they had a tremendous amount of water you know that uh rain basically that had dumped on the area prior to us getting there so the tide necessarily didn't act quite the way that the tidal charts had predicted that's correct i had tried to figure it up so we'd be at specific spots at, at specific times depending on the tide but like you said because of the full moon and and because of the wind direction you know the full moon will affect the tide the wind direction will affect the tide so we actually had an exceptionally high high tide yesterday which kind of threw a kink in our plans because we were waiting on an outgoing tide and, but, you know, we, we adjusted and we were able to catch some fish and had a ball. Well, and I, I think that's the key is when you're looking at really in fishing in general, not just in tidal fishing, but specifically, you know, when it came to kind of our time there on the St. John's River was the fact that, you know, we had to constantly adjust. And rather than kind of the, the process that we adopted instead of trying to run the tide, meaning that, you know, we were keeping up with kind of the flow or the level of the water, basically we, we kind of settled into certain areas and, and waited for the conditions to develop and unfold. When you start trying to run the tide, like I say, if you can't factor in all the conditions, the wind, the moon, those kind of things, you can really mess yourself up. So in our case, we picked a couple of areas, we stuck to them, you know, and we tried a variety of different baits on 
on different tides until we figured out what worked. And and I think that was the best because then we spent more time with our lines in the water rather than running. Oh, no question. And, you know, if you had to kind of narrow it down, and maybe this holds true for all tidal fishings, but let's even get a little more narrow focused um, concerning our day on the water. What would you say was kind of the key uh, to our success on the St. John's River? You may disagree, but in my mind, our key to success here was not getting stuck on any one particular bait, any one particular pattern. You know, we kind of mixed it up. We got to a particular place. If the tide was opposite of what we thought it should be, then we changed our tactics. We didn't We didn't just stick with one bait. You know, we threw a variety of different baits. And that way we were able to figure out what the fish were doing on that particular tide. Well, and, you know, one of the things that, that I learned so much of our time on the water was, and plus it was just so exciting, is the fact that, you know, those fish were visible. They were showing us they were there because we would have some schooling activity from time to time. But the other thing is, you know, we had a lot of rods out on the front deck. And the fact that we were able to go through once they maybe moved off the top water or one particular bait, we were able to basically reach down on the deck, pick up another one, and have success. That's a real key thing is to not get hung up on one bait or any any one thing. You've got to be versatile. you you got to be willing to change. And, and like I say, we, we would go from a topwater to a Carolina rig and still catch fish. But you kind of got to listen to the fish and, and see what they want. You know, and, and really, we launched right there out of uh, kind of the city ramp, I think. They're close to Platka. We didn't burn much gas. And, you know, the interesting thing... I think when you consider what you had alluded to a little bit earlier as far as running the tide, by picking those those basically those spots and those areas that, that we've more or less targeted, what uh, kind of led us into that decision or that thought process of why we picked the areas that we did to target? Well, this, this is such a great fishery, and, and there's so much water that you can cover on a limited time schedule like we were doing the show. You know, I felt like it was best that we concentrate in, in a particular area and put all our efforts in, or all our eggs in one basket, if you may, to try to figure out what these fish were doing. Otherwise, we could have spent our time running, you know, miles and miles and and fishing lots of water, and with the tide, you could miss the fish by five minutes and wind up not catching a fish. So by staying in in a couple of different areas, we were able to figure out when they were going to bite or what they were going to bite, rather than running off and trying to find other fish. Well, and one of the things that I've noticed that basically adds to what you just said right there, any title system, you know, of course, you and I have both been on the Potomac, on St. John's, out on the California Delta, on the Chafalaya, numerous title systems. It seems like it does not matter. But if you are not there when basically that, that light switch gets flipped, I mean, literally, we could see things come to life. It was almost like the schooling activity started picking up. And that's when really our high percentage areas more or less came to life. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we had one particular place that, that we came up on. We got a couple of bites really quick, and then they quit. Well, the conditions changed. The tide changed. That just proved to us that if you moved around too much, you could wind up missing fish all day long rather than catching fish. So by staying in particular areas and just working different baits and, and different tides, we were able to figure out what the fish wanted. Well, and really two distinct areas, uh, maybe even three. I would almost kind of throw in that, that sandbar um, out in the front of those docks that we fish. 
But uh, one of them was a little bit better positioned for kind of an outgoing tide, the other being more positioned for an incoming tide. How does the average angler determine, okay, well, I need to be here during this condition, or, uh, you know, how do you go about breaking that down and figuring that out for yourself? That's really a tough question because if you don't live in a particular area and you know the area, you pretty much have to stay there and fish it, at least fish it on both tides to figure out which tide the fish are biting on because they are very specific. Some are specific to incoming, some specific to outgoing. So you kind of have to divide your time up and at least fish it some of the time on, on either tide to try to figure out which one they like. You know, we were fortunate enough to where because of just obviously trying to transport the crew and just the, some of the conditions that we face from a time perspective, we actually, that's exactly what we did. And by having numerous baits tied on ready to go, we were more or less able to get that group of fish to respond to numerous different baits under differing tide conditions. Yeah, you know, there was a particular place that I really expected us to just wear them out on Carolina rig. And when we got there because of the tide and the wind direction and all that, you know, the fish weren't relating to the bottom and we we actually wound up catching them on a crankbait. So that's another key there is just not get stuck on any particular bait. If, if one's not working, try another one until you figure out what they're going to bite. Well, and, and how many times as anglers have we cost ourselves because we're trying to force feed the fish into doing what we think they should be doing? You and I even actually talked about that on the way out that morning when we launched. You know, we said we think this is going to be a, a Carolina rig, maybe a topwater situation. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. Sometimes, you you know, you go out there just single-minded, and a lot of times in fishing you can't. You know, they've actually got a brain, and as I've often said, if their brain was as big as ours, we're supposed to be the intelligent species, but if their brain was as big as <laughs> they'd be running the country that's right because they can outsmart us so many times but you have to be versatile you got to be willing to change well and and again i i noticed that the two areas that we concentrated on one because of the high water situation you know again explaining the conditions because of the amount of rain that they had you know even on a low tide situation it was not pulling all of the amount of water that had fallen in that area so it was it was really key to look for areas that had a definite bank and otherwise, basically, the water was way up into the woods. Yeah, you know, like you say, with the high water and, and then the exceptional high tide due to the full moon, I mean, the water was getting way back in the woods. So you're right. We, we had to key in on areas that were more contained, if you will, so that the fish didn't get so scattered. So they stayed more positioned, you know, where it was easier for us to find them. Let's transition to also because of, of the water quality and, and really the color more so than anything. I think I spent a half a day trying to disprove your crankbait color and to no avail. I mean, you know, I, I, I think I, I managed to catch a couple on that other crankbait, but there was certain baits, more so certain colors that we went to. I know in the Carolina rig, it was June bug. In the crankbait, it was the fire tiger. In the spook, you know, it was the black and chrome. Why is that, and how did the kind of the watercolor play into that decision? Well, the water here is brackish, and uh, it's a real dark color, but it's actually clear. But in that dark color, it changes the variations of the colors of your bait. So, you know, with the fire tiger, it actually made a contrast where it was more visible. The chrome with the sun out, you know, there again, it made it visible. The june bug, you know, anytime you've got dark conditions, you're supposed to throw a dark colored worm so it throws a different contrast. So there again, that was just something we kind of played around with um, until we got it figured out. I think that's where perhaps a lot of anglers they maybe discount the fact that by having two people in the boat at the same time. You know, when you have two lines in the water working the same area, 
you know, would you agree that it's pretty important that you both be trying something else just to kind of narrow down, you know, what is or is not working? Oh, no doubt. You know, when I'm practicing for a tournament and it's a situation where my husband can be in the boat with me, we always, it doesn't matter if I'm catching more fish than him or he's catching more fish than I am, you know, we always throw different baits to see what they're biting and what they're not because that makes a huge difference. You can go to an area that's loaded with fish, and if you're not throwing what they're specific to, you're not going to get bit. Well, and in our closing moments here, let's go back also on both situations. One, both of the, the spots that we kind of really had our most success on. One had a creek that was feeding into it. The other one was actually a point, and which if you think about it, the creek, you know, that was coming into the main channel where we were targeting, that ultimately created two points as well but what happens when you know because if in tide the current is going to change directions obviously so on one particular tide the current might be going south and on another particular tide the current is going to be going north what is it about you know the points and and kind of that situation that positions the fish to where they're almost predictable during those tidal fluctuations you know that depends on where the ledge or the ditch or depression or whatever may be because when the tide's coming in if it's hitting a particular you know ledge and it's really stacking the bait fish up or if it's rushing over so you've just really got to look at which way the tide's running where your drop off's at that way you know and then you kind of visualize if you were a fish down there trying to catch something that was coming by at a certain certain angle where would you be sitting so you know that's kind of what you have to do well and and when you say drop off i mean we're not talking about a 10 foot drop off no i mean you know here in florida a ledge can be six inches whereas in missouri you know a ledge may be 20 feet it's kind of like fishing grass i say it's all relative a ledge is a ledge the fish doesn't know if it's whatever all they know is they've got something to relate to yeah and you know certainly those fish were definitely related i know that one particular area basically there was a, just a little bit of a depression like you speak of and it was what 12 inches yeah i mean you know we it went from like four and a half feet to five feet but that was just enough of a little ledge or drop off whatever that when the current was coming by it was washing the bait by it was stacking them up there and that's where the fish were feeding well they definitely were feeding and, and pam we had a great time a great day i can tell you one thing when it comes to the St. Johns River in Palatka, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to go back. Yeah, it's a wonderful fishery. I had a ball here, and I can't wait to come back. Well, thanks so much, Pam, for being part of The Edge, and we wish you continued success on this year's tour. Thank you very much, Aaron. Power. Productivity. Speed. It's the best trencher ever made. Not to mention the best plow, dumper, tiller, backhoe, stump grinder, and tool carrier ever made. The Zahn, the revolution, is here. Hey Edge listeners, this is Boyd Duckett. I'd like to congratulate the guys on a hundred shows. Man, that was sure a good time down on the St. John's River with Pam and her husband, Stephen. I just uh, look back and then I tell you what, I could use some of those 80-degree temperatures right now, too. Boy, that is for sure. I, I still remember when we pulled into uh, the parking lot there at the Best Western, you know, they had uh, Santa Claus already. Remember that? That big right, Christmas right. decoration. Right, yeah. sandals, right. Across the bridge there, and uh, away we went. But, no, uh, once again, you know, of course, uh, the St. John's River, what a fishery. And uh, we find ourselves, once again, talking about the tidal system. But I thought uh, 
Pam Martin Wells, not only just a lot of fun to fish with, but just her knowledge. You know, she's right there based out mm-hmm. of uh, Bainbridge, Georgia, a little bit to the north. And so anyway, it was it was a good time. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it was one of those places that I had never been before until we went down to shoot. And of course, uh, I, I just love going new places. This is really part of the great part of this job. Uh, we get to go to these various places, but you see something different every time. Like this sort of tannic colored water that was down there. And uh, if people have seen that, they know what I mean. It's like it's it's got a color to it, like a brown, but it's still relatively clear. Right, right. And do you remember when we talked uh, to Sean Hernke a few weeks ago there uh, about Lake Fork? He got into the discussion of, you know, water clarity, but there's different mm-hmm. shades. And, you know, he was talking about, like, what you speak of here. He was also getting into, you know, whether it had a bluish tint to it, a greenish mm-hmm. tint. And then that makes a difference, you know, with the colors uh, of your baits that you're offering to them because mm-hmm. of the way that it, you know, is going to show up or appear to the fish. Well, you know, Tim Horton told me that just a short time ago that the number one thing he looks for is the color of the water, not the clarity or not the, you know, not so much the water temperature, but the color of the water. And my goodness, the St. John's offered something totally different than uh, that I was used to. And the baits, you know, when you were bringing those baits through, they did have a definitely different hue to them if they came through that tannic water. Well, they did. And, you know, two of the areas that I remember specifically in, in, in talking about the tides and, and positioning, the one in particular was right there close to the Platka Bridge, if you remember right. And there was mm-hmm. kind of a flat that came off the main channel of what we just talked about earlier. Uh, there was some stumps, you know, that was in there. We had a pipe, a drainage mm-hmm. pipe that came in. But it was just a perfect area, a little bow that went back in towards a dock and had some bull rushes and some things closer to the bank. But as that tide got higher, what we found is that, you know, that gave them more space to roam. But then once it dropped, man, you could go in there and those fish would come up schooling. You remember that? And mm-hmm. uh, we were able to target them both yeah. with top water and that crankbait. Well, it just seems like that pipe, you know, it ran uh, sort of uh, perpendicular to the, to, to, to the way the current would have become. And it was incredible how many times that uh, when that tide was moving, they, she would catch those fish right there on the pipe. They had to just be, I was trying to imagine just looking down there and seeing all these fish lined up on there like you might see in a trout stream. Uh, in a, you know, behind rocks or something. But that pipe, you know, they used it as a current break when that tide was coming in, and it was a great ambush point, and we caught an awful lot of fish in one spot. We did, we did, and I, I think it had less to do with particularly, let's say, you know, we had the pattern going, we knew the tide, but even on a slack tide, which is could be considered, you know, mm-hmm. one of the lesser productive times to fish because that, that day the wind was blowing. Remember, then we used the wind current that was coming across those stumps in that pipe and still used that to our advantage. And, uh, man, it was it was really, really fun. We've been fishing the tides a lot lately, and I know you really enjoy that. I, I do, you know, again, because I just think when you have moving water, and whether that be from a tidal influence or just from current, you know, that's created by the, the natural flow of the river, um, the positioning of the fish, like you described with that pipe and that current break, um, it just really, I think, makes it easier to pinpoint the locations and to identify areas, you know, where the bass are holding. And if, and if you look at Palatka in that area, where that general area where we were staying, you kind of look out there and, and everything looks like it should hold, be holding fish, but that's not always the case. You know, you've got to identify those little areas, uh, whether it be a turn or a break or, uh, you know, some vegetation or a drop-off. And uh, if, if you can identify where the structure is, but also the bait, that's a winning combination right there. Well, that took me back to my childhood 
that running back and forth to various spots as the as the tide changed. You know, I grew up uh, near Galveston where we had deep channels, shallow bays, uh, just every kind of lakes with water going in and out. And you would look at the tides, and that would tell you where to go fishing, whether you were going to go wade off of Pelican Island or fish the beach or fish the St. Louis Pass or whatever. And, uh, you know, it's just the same thing in fresh water. The fish are going to be at certain places during certain tides, or they're going to be active at certain places at certain tides. Sure enough. And, uh, you know, hats off to Pam for spending the day with us there, and uh, appreciate her taking time to do the interview. We always learn a lot. Yeah, that, that, was a, that was a good time. And we will have to get her on here again real soon. But I tell you what, Aaron, we need to get to some of this 100th podcast stuff. Yeah, I know. We kind of got sidetracked there, didn't we? Well, I know. You're talking fishing. Yeah, that's like you said earlier. We're, we're going to run out of something. To say. <laughs> Not a chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's going to happen. Okay, I tell you what. Listen to F. we got a pretty cool giveaway, and I'm going to let you do the honor. Absolutely. You know, in recognition of making it to 100, we are going to be awarding one lucky winner Really, everything, uh, one of everything that's on the Bass Edge shelf. Of course, uh, leading off that charge is your book, Steve. Somebody's Got to Do It. It has uh, some great stories like we've talked about many, many times. Uh, the Psychology of Exceptional Fishing book that is by Dr. Jay McNamara. We have the Electronics 101 with deep fishing bonus footage that's on there by four different anglers. Uh, DVD, the Season 1 and Season 2 DVD. The Go-To Tackle Storage System. Uh, Bass Edge Fishing on the Edge t-shirt a hat, and a decal. And to enter that, all that listeners need to do is send that to podcast at BassEdge.com. Again, that is podcast at BassEdge.com, which is different from the weekly giveaway that we do on the website and through the e-newsletter. This is exclusive only to the podcast. So I want to make sure that everybody understands that to get that sent in and make sure they send that to podcast at BassEdge.com. And good luck to everybody that enters, and uh, hopefully... You will be the lucky winner. Well, Aaron, we got a reader question this week, and it's right up your alley. All right. Well, I like that. Zach wants to know, when drop shot fishing, how much line should there be between the hook and the sinker, and what is a good bait to use while drop shotting? And, of course, Aaron, you're the drop shot hey, king. The, Tell Zach how it's done. I, uh, again, that is right up my alley. Zach, thanks for the question. Uh, again, what we're talking about here when it comes to drop shot, uh, really the three components that's involved that I use mainly is going to be the, the swivel. Uh, that's going to help prevent line twist, which is kind of at the, the uh, if you're thinking of the, the rig vertically, that's going to be at the top, about six to eight inches below that. Uh, basically, just use a bait holder hook uh, or some kind of a, uh, you know, round bend offset style hook uh, that is used with a polymer knot to attach that to right below the, the swivel. And then below that is actually just either a drop shot sinker uh, specifically designed to where it crimps down on the line, or uh, you can also use what we call a casting sinker uh, and just tie that directly to uh, the end of the line. As far as the distance is concerned, you know, from the distance between the hook and the sinker, if I'm fishing for, let's say, suspended fish, uh, I normally keep that about, uh, let's say, 10 to 14 inches uh, below my bait. There's no really rhyme or reason for that. Uh, other than just to get it, uh, create a little bit of distance between the bait. Now, one thing that I do pay attention to on on the distance between the weight and the hook is going to be, let's say, if I'm fishing uh, vegetation or fishing some sort of structure to where if I've noticed on my graph that the, the bass are holding a little bit in the vegetation, but they want it, let's say, positioned right above the vegetation where they can come up and ambush that bait. Then, 
in that particular situation, if, uh, let's say that the vegetation is 18 inches tall, I may go up to an 18-inch leader so that I can use the weight as kind of a guide to ensure that I'm keeping that, that bait in the strike zone. But really, Steve, what it comes down to is, uh, you know, using that electronics and, and take that information that you're seeing on your graph in real time. If the fish are suspended, there again, just use the standard rule of thumb. But if you notice that they're holding maybe a little bit off the bottom above a brush pile or something like that, then you can adjust that leader to ensure that uh, you're going to keep that bait in the strike zone. The other thing is I would throw out to Zach is if this is something that you really like to do, get that electronics DVD. It has great information on how to program your electronics to be able to read and take that information and then put it to use. But it also goes through, talks in great detail about the drop shot, different baits to use, uh, those type of things. Good well, Aaron, I know you and I have uh, drop shot a lot together, and I know that it, and it seems like you're usually throwing a finesse worm. Talk about that a little bit. I mean, do you do you throw other baits, or is that your kind of go-to bait? Well, in, in the cooler water, you know, when the, the bass are really uh, keying in around the schools of bait fish, I'm going to stick with something that's more mimics uh, more of a bait fish, like that, that jig that we've talked about, you know, earlier in the year, or uh, getting into like a minnow-type bait, maybe like the gulp products, something like that. But then as the water warms, then I'm going to more of a straight tail worm, you know, robo worm, a zoom finesse worm, something like that. And that's kind of how I do it. And the other thing is, remember on a drop shot, I'm not bouncing that up and down a lot. All I'm doing is keeping that line really on my index finger. And it's almost like shooting a gun. I'm using that as a trigger. And that is what is giving the action, you know, just a real subtle uh, presence right. because you're essentially just lowering that right down into the bass's house. <laughs> well, that's some great advice. Not all to help old Zach once those fish move back out off these spring spots and get suspended again. And we thank you for that answer, Aaron. I tell you what, man, let's slip away for a minute, and on the other side, we'll be back to talk with Mark Tucker. Hi, this is Jared Littner. It is awesome that you guys have done a hundred podcasts. Keep up the excellent work. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. KeelGuard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. KeelGuard keel protectors. Is Steve really a hundred? This is Denny Brower, and I just wanted to congratulate you on your 100th episode. Welcome back, and we are on the inside edge here of Bass Edge, and joining us today is BASS Elite Angler, and that is Mark Tucker. Mark, once again, thanks for being part of the Edge. Thank you for having me, Aaron. You know, I, I, I really got a lot out of this segment that you did on this week's television show, and that was on the topic of go-to baits. And, you know, maybe before we dive off into what those baits actually are, perhaps you could kind of describe uh, what you mean by when you say your go-to bait. Well, and that's actually, I mean, that's kind of just your pet baits. The ones you like to fish, the ones you have most confidence in, are the baits that you're going to catch more fish on. So, in, for instance, in, in your case, it, uh, it's going to be a, a variety of baits, but one that you feel that when the conditions get tough that you might revert to just kind of as a last resort. Yes, and just kind of grind it out. You're more intimate with that bait, so you know exactly how to fish it. 
And sometimes, though, it comes back and bites you <laughs> if you're not careful. You know, you try to force feed a fish that doesn't want to eat a jig. It's hard to handle at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, and, and certainly these are in no particular order. But, uh, you know, what's, what's kind of uh, the number one pick? You know, I love fishing a jig. But more than anything, you have to take into consideration the time of the year, the water temperature, the water clarity, the type of fishery you're on. There's a little more to it than just picking a favorite bait. You have to consider all the other obligations that, that go along with that, but I prefer to take a jig day in and day out in the springtime of the year, mm-hmm. and uh, I prefer either a black and blue or just a plain old brown one. You know, and one of the things that I appreciate about the jig, because if you look at, um, you know, talk with anglers, look at tournament results, what have you, you know, the jig obviously has produced a tremendous amount of fish, but also big fish. And, you know, they talk a lot about the versatility of a jig. You can get it to resemble maybe a crayfish, uh, a bluegill, something like that. So, you know, that obviously plays into it as well. Well, and the other thing is, a lot of people approach me and ask me, you know, they don't have the confidence in fishing a jig. The biggest thing about fishing a jig Most of the time, when you pitch that jig in or you cast it out or you flip it, a bass will initially hit it on its initial fall. So, you know, working it back to the boat, other than a football head, Mm -hmm. most of the time if you're pitching a, a, you know, a 3-8-ounce jig or you're fishing a jig up close, you really have to pay attention and watch your line and that initial pitch that you pitch it in there, that fish normally grabs it before it hits the bottom or right after it hits the bottom. So a lot of people try to fish it back to the boat like a worm, and uh, they never feel the bite because the fish a lot of times picks it up on the initial fall, and if you don't know it, they end up spitting it out before you set the hook on them. Right. And quickly, before we move on to the next bait, what rod length and what pound of test are you normally throwing that on? I prefer, if I'm throwing a quarter-ounce jig, I like to use 10-pound test line, trilene, 100% fluorocarbon, I use a 7-foot American Rodsmith Bass Magnum Rod, and regardless of the type of cover I'm fishing, I don't care if I'm in Amistad in, Florida, or in Texas, it's about the fall rate on that jig. Regardless of the type of cover you're fishing, yeah, you're going to break some off, they're going to wrap you up, but it's about getting that reaction bite from that fish with that light line. Right, and if it's too fast, they goes by them, and if it's too slow, they're not going to react. they just ignore it. Yep, yep. Okay, so the next one I think that you've identified was the square bill. Exactly, and that's more of a pre-spawn, post-spawn deal, and it's something that I can get up shallow and cover a tremendous amount of water in a short period of time. It's more of a reaction bite as opposed to a feeding bite, but they also really feed on that square bill as well. And, and the square bill crankbait, by having that, that wider, that more broad uh, bill on it, allows you to kind of bang into the cover? And... Oh, you absolutely. You, I mean, I catch them in, on a mud bottom with no cover, just grinding in the mud or bouncing it off the cover or rocks or running it down the side of boat docks. So it's a, it's a really versatile bait that anybody can pick up and throw. The key to that is I keep it on 17 pounds, either fluorocarbon or mono, whichever you prefer, and a fiberglass rod and 17 to 20 pound test line is, is, is what I throw it on and just cover a ton of water with it. And like at the Ozarks or Table Rock, I've caught them under docks that's sitting over 40 feet of water and the bait only goes down two and a half feet. So sure. you can really apply it in different applications. And next- Next one is probably certainly, I think, one that all of us can attest to that we love to do, and that's topwater. Exactly. You know, whether it's a buzz bait late in the fall or early spring or, or summertime, again, you know, the, the water conditions, the type of lake you're fishing, that has a lot to do with it. I prefer 
you know, like throwing the Vixens, their spook, you know, the Ricos and stuff like that. So there again, you have to take in consideration the time of the year you're fishing to determine what bait you want to use. When you're looking at water temperature, I guess, does that come into play? I mean, is there a certain, you know, level that that reaches before you start or stop using a topwater? Well, it does, but it shouldn't. Okay. And because there's nothing that's written in stone, you right. know that as well as I do. Absolutely. So, you know, I mean, I've seen some of the craziest things in 39-degree water, guys catching them on top water. So if you get a gut feeling to throw something, you need to try it at least, you know, 10 or 15 times. And, and if it doesn't work, oh, well, move on to something else. But, you know, I prefer to throw a top water bait more in the summer months and in the fall than I do in the springtime. And, and finally, you know, one that is written up in all of the publications, and that is the jig head or uh, shaky head worm. Right. And the key to that is a lot of that is I like using six-pound test, and I use trilene fluorocarbon 100%, and I use a six-foot-nine American Rodsmith rod. And the big key to the, the shaky head or the jig head worm is you really need to throw. A lot of guys throw it on bait caster. I prefer to throw it on a spinning rod exclusively because you just got more feel and you can let the bait fall more straight down next to the object than a bait caster. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing, key, I see a lot of people do wrong is they use a too soft of spinning rod, and you need one that's got a little bit of stout back to it, but it's got a little tip so you can feel what it's in. But that's the key, to, and, and I mean, you can catch them all over the United States on the jig head one. Yeah, and, and, and we've seen that time and time again. And would you agree that I think, you know, using the jig head worm, we've talked obviously about its versatility, but also, you know, to take that to the next level is being able to, to learn and develop that skill of, of skipping that bait, you know, under cover and around docks and bushes and things like that exactly and that takes practice with the spinning rod i mean that's one reason you really need to put it on a spinning rod to be able to skip it back under boat stalls and in between ropes and stuff on docks and plus you can control a big fish better and you can back reel with the fish to where he doesn't break you off but on a bait caster it's hard to cast that thing and pinpoint accuracy with a bait caster where a spinning rod you can really get it in there tight all good information, Mark, and, uh, you know, the fortunate thing is I think uh, you just gave us four great things to make sure every single one of us have in our tackle box. It's been fun. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but uh, we look forward to talking with you again very I, soon. I can't wait, Aaron. Now you can order Bass Edge Seasons 1 and 2 on DVD. Own the best resource for tips and techniques in bass fishing is host Aaron Martin tackles lakes across the country with the industry's top pro anglers, including Edwin Evers, Boyd Duckett, Alton Jones, and Pam Martin-Wells. The two sets include all 25 episodes with never-before-seen footage, over three hours of bonus pro angler interviews, bloopers, and highlights. Each two-disc set is just $19.95. Call 1-888-390-8780 or order online at BassEdge.com. This is Davey Hyde. I don't know how you guys have put up with one another so long, but congratulations on the 100th episode. Well, it's always good to hear from Mark, and man, it's been so great to hear from all the guys calling in on our 100. Yeah, I appreciate them doing that and taking the time uh, just to wish us happy 100th episode, and uh, a little nostalgic, you know, kind of this uh, sentimental feeling running through us today. But Yeah, yeah, it is, but it's been fun. It has. I tell you what, before we get away, I do want to throw in one more reminder about our big 100th episode giveaway. Email those entries to podcast at bassedge.com, and we've got a whole list of good stuff we're going 
going to give away. So get those entries in. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, unfortunately, Steve, uh, that about does it for this show. It is 100 has came and gone. Uh, but we will be back again next week. And who is up on our uh, roster for next week? Well, starting our second hundred podcast, <laughs> our good buddy from Arkansas, Scott Suggs. And we'll also be visiting with our very own Dr. Jay McNamara and Dr. Fish himself. We'll look forward to that. Be sure and join us for this show on the Outdoor Channel, where Bass Edge is seen three times weekly, 8 a.m. on Thursdays, 9 a.m. on Fridays, and Saturday afternoon at 2.30 on all Eastern Time. For the latest Bass Edge information, merchandise, and the opportunity to win prizes and ask the pro questions, be sure and log on to BassEdge.com. For Steve Brigman, I am Aaron Martin, and we look forward to seeing you again next week right here on The Edge. This week's edition of Bass Edge's The Edge has been brought to you by B&W Trailer Hitches, Ditch Witch, Mega Wear Keel Guard, O'Reilly Auto Parts, and Legend Boats. For more information on Bass Edge, including our television show, training materials, e-newsletter, and podcast, please visit www.bassedge.com. Be sure to join us next week on The Edge.